Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast. Every week we take a look at the technology behind the energy news. We do that by reviewing the Rethink Energy issue that we've just published. My name is Peter White. This week, co-presenter Harry Morgan is away on holiday, but we have our solar specialist, Andrew Swantonar. Hello. And we have our publisher, Simon Thompson. Hello, hi. On the show today, we'll discuss whether or not Joe Biden's two-year moratorium on solar tariffs for the companies from Indochina will be enough to um, kickstart the US solar business once again. We're also going to discuss whether US car makers are um, really set to become software companies, and if so, how they're going to do that, as the CEO of Ford pointed out this week. And we're going to ask if places like Egypt and Azerbaijan can really export all the sunlight falling on them as either electricity or better still hydrogen. And finally, we'll ask our publisher, Simon Thompson, what's caught his eye in this week's issue. First off, Andres, I want to talk to you about what Joe Biden's announced and how you think it will go down. So so there's a few things, there's quite a few different angles to discuss with this energy emergency, which Biden has has declared. I actually addressed this, um, these worries about the grid reliability in, in, later in the summer uh, a fair bit. But the most immediate thing to consider is he, he's imposed a two-year moratorium on any potential tariffs that would be placed on the Indo-Chinese countries, which the Department of Commerce has threatened with retroactive tariffs, potentially, depending on their anti-dumping investigation. So normally, uh, it's 10 years ago now, the US imposed these uh, anti-dumping tariffs on Chinese uh, solar imports. And since then, it's ended up in a position uh, as of last year, where it gets 80% of its solar modules instead from Southeast Asia. And now, uh, I think we can debate how Chinese the industry in Southeast Asia is. But after several failed petitions to the Department of Commerce, one got through uh, back in late March, and that already effectively shut down the import of this 80% of the the US solar supply into the country, because there's the possibility that a 240% tariff would be retroactively applied to anything imported during the investigation period. And what Biden has done is he's, he's prevented that from happening over the over the next two years. So he's opened the, the floodgates open again. So as long as this president is in power for, for two years, the, they can't retrospectively put import tariffs on uh, on uh, solar panels that are actually delivered from Indochina. What, what's, what everybody listening to this podcast will want to know is, can they pick up the phone to their supply line in those countries in Malaysia, in Indonesia, and Vietnam, and can they order new solar panels? And can they? Will there be relief on both pricing and delivery dates? Do you think that's going to happen as a result of this, or do you think if you were a supplier coming from uh, ASEAN and looking at the potential for retrospective penalties, do you think you would have already sold this year's manufacturing supply elsewhere? Um, I think that this is really the presidential hammer coming down. So I would be surprised if there was some kind of legal challenge or obstacle that reverted things back yet again, although I guess that's always a possibility in America. Well, you said in your story that they were they were looking at uh, that they were talking to their lawyers about what their, what their response could be. 
No, you're completely right. Yeah, they are talking. Yeah, Auction Solar, the people from who, who finally got through the successful petition to the Department of Commerce. And by the way, a previous petition failed on the grounds that it was made by an anonymous coalition of companies. And then the company that makes the successful one is very small. So maybe they're representing more than just themselves. I mean, clearly they are. But they say they're weighing legal actions. So actually, yes, it, it still is possible that this could get overturned. Classic America. But the other question is... Um, Will the modules even still be there to be bought? Last week, or maybe it was the week before, I think it was last week, we covered this um, this surprise announcement from the uh, National Energy Administration of China saying that there were, I think, 121 gigawatts of solar projects under development in China. Now, I knew that this would be a huge year for China, and I, I knew that there would be more built than just 55 gigawatts of last year. It would be up to more like 80 five, I was thinking. And then the NEA says that of that 121 gigawatts, they expect 108 to be commissioned this year. So China is, it's always expanding its factories a huge amount. Polysilicon isn't expanding that swiftly, and it's still a bottleneck. So if China uses an extra 50 gigawatts, and you interrupted the supply into the US, and it might still get messed with, yeah, it probably will be sold elsewhere. I mean, another article I was writing this week was it's not the most fascinating article, but it was about the increase in demand and, and, and just plans in Azerbaijan and Egypt and I think Pakistan I might have to write about soon. It's all these countries that are really that are suddenly becoming big solar markets uh, and the original big ones in the EU are back alive. So we're going to have to look into it more. But it, I, I mean, I think I think the forecast that um, you should have produced by now, which we're still waiting for on solar, re- really is getting bigger and bigger all the time. The, the, the market is accelerating. The size and the numbers, every time you look at the, the figure again, it gets bigger in front of your eyes. So this this um, strain on the um, supply lines for solar, it's not going to go away. No. I think the polysilicon element of it could become less crucial, but it's gonna—it's not going to go away completely. I mean, I think that this whole point of this, we're used to the cost of solar getting lower and lower and lower. We can see that under Wright's law, when you're manufacturing solar uh, cells and modules, that can still be true. We can still get a, a lower cost per uh, megawatt of hour of energy f- from solar, Uh, going forward the next 10 or 20 years, except when there's a supply constraint, when it becomes just like oil or coal or or natural gas. Supply and demand takes over and people people will keep charging what they can get for it. So we've entered a new phase in the development of solar, I think. And I don't think President Biden can turn the tide. Image of him like... um, uh, King Canute stood in front of the waves. And, and from what I understand, the Defense Production Act, which he's invoked also to uh, to subsidize uh, American manufacturing, which he wasn't able to pass the House and the Senate, passed it by the House, but not the Senate. From what I understand, that only has a budget of a few hundred million dollars. So if you put all of that into solar and you leverage a bunch of private investment alongside it, you've got a few billion and uh, that can build a few gigawatts or, or even quite a few gigawatts of solar production line from start to finish vertically integrated but it's not the, the 40 gigawatts that you would like to have of production capacity that, that may, leads us to the conclusion that america is going to remain supply constrained not just because of polysilicon but because of uh, an undersupplied uh, manufacturing market going forward three four five years yeah yeah and that's and that's bad news if you happen to be trying to build solar panels solar installations in the united states so 
we'll drop that there. That's um, that's what we think um, today, and that this work will have minimal effect on the industry. But if anybody out there wants to call us and tell us, no, no, I, I got onto my suppliers and immediately um, I got hold of uh, the solar panels I've been looking for for the past six months, then by all means do that. Um, and moving on to, I just wanted to talk a bit about now about um, what's going on with Ford. So Jim Farley at Ford was asked to talk at a, a conference, the Bernstein conference last week. And he's painted a picture, a very different picture of how Ford was two years ago. Uh, when he took over. It is clearly changing its attitude to electric vehicles. One thing we keep being drawn to is the fact that it seems to make more internal combustion engine vehicles than it needs and not enough electric vehicles and that its supply chain is probably still in flux and still changing and it's still surprising them the the rate of demand. But um, he made a, a number of projections about what will happen to Ford. He basically thinks there's going to be a price war. So we've got this lovely situation where Elon Musk stood up, um, uh, it's about two years ago now, and said there'll be, we'll make a car below $25,000. And then earlier this year, reneged on that and said, no, we're not even working on a car below $25,000. Someone else will have to do that because uh, everyone's going to be using software to automatically drive from A to B. And uh, look, Transport is going to become much cheaper, but not by buying a car. So that's for someone else to do. And here's Mr. Farley at Ford saying, well, we're in the race. There's going to be blood everywhere as, as we're all cutthroat. And we're going to get to the sub $25,000 car. And it's going to be the biggest land grab market since the Model T Ford came out. Well, which we've been saying for some time. But again, what he highlights in here is all of the lovely revenues that are going to come by becoming a software company. Uh, we only have to pop back to somewhere in about October when the CEO of um, General Motors, Mary Barra, entered the same fantasy world and said, yep, we're going to make lots and lots of money. It's going to, our revenues are going to go up and up. We're going to overtake Tesla and we're going to become a software company. Well, I just really find this strange. I've spent a lot of time with um, telecommunications businesses, uh, seeing them struggle to become software companies, and usually failing. And now here we are with the car industry. Shouldn't they be calling has... in Microsoft? The, yeah, the, ex well, shouldn't they the be experts calling in... in software. <laughs> experts. Yeah. Well, yeah well, if anybody has some... got Microsoft uh, <laughs> Windows right. 11 at the moment, okay. um, they'll be thinking that they're very, very uh, shoddy writers of software, but or Apple or Google, mm. uh, you know, that these companies have made their names on it. Or, or Elon Musk's Tesla, to be fair, you mm. know, what Tesla's doing with them um, uh, in the software uh, zone is massive. But I'm just struggling to see revenues associated with it. He, he, he made the point that um, um, they've already got fleet revenues, but selling to a corporate market and offering them fleet software to look after and manage the amount of electricity they use, etc., is a different story from getting a consumer to pay extra for software. Tesla has done it, you know, but not 100% of Tesla car owners have downloaded full self-driving uh, um, software and paid the extra money for it. And I just think that there's a fantasy going on here um, that they're copying one another. The CEOs of the traditional businesses General Motors, Ford and Stellantis are, according to our figures, 
they can do nothing but go backwards in market share in the United States. They may be able to later reclaim some of that market share once they get their um, battery businesses up to speed. But they're so far behind that, that, that can't, they can't start that effort till about 2026, 2027. I find this idea that they're going to make more revenue and make more profit than they do today in a market which is which is a cutthroat price business. I was about um, to say, is this Ford joining EVs for the first time or just increasing its commitment? And what is it doing that's special? But actually, it sounds like I should be asking, who are they losing market share to? Is it? I mean, it must be Tesla, but will the Chinese be exporting EVs to, to the US? Yeah, well, that, that, that's, that's so, so let's just answer that question. Ford has done um, was very late to the party. After the election of Joe Biden, uh, Mary Barra was first to commit to going EVs, fully EVs by 2035. Ford, Ford did it, followed up a few months later with a similar kind of statement that they were going to be fully EVs in Europe and, and do better in the United States. But what they actually did is they came out with um, a, uh, their F-150 Lightning, um, a pickup, um, which is their market-leading pickup, and they came out with the must e Mustang, and they both took those those um, brands that that were very important to Ford, and they electrified them, and they didn't just electrify them; they made a brand new um, uh, platform, um, but but got them to move on from from where their ICE counterparts were. They've been very popular. They haven't yet delivered those. They, they they've sold out the first two years of manufacture. And because they under they underestimated the demand, they they're going to be nobody will be able to buy either of those for the next couple of years. So that's that's one thing, and they're desperately trying to re reorganise their supply chain to make more of them. So they've been successful by taking their iconic brands and electrifying them, but they've been unsuccessful in that they are unable to deliver the numbers they want. What Farley says is, look, this is round one. In round one, we'll be lucky if we just break even on cars. But in round two, we're planning all the software, and, we're, and it's going to be our effort, and we're planning self-driving. We're planning all these things. They call it something else, but we're planning all these. They'll all be in place in four years. Well, I don't even think they'll have enough. Uh, they'll be battery constrained still in four years. I don't think they'll be able to produce as many um, cars as they want to. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. So when, if we did come back in the year 2026, what landscape will we see? And also, do you, will we see a sub-25,000 car by then? Oh, definitely. And by, by 2024, I should think. Now, what, what's, what everyone's now fascinated about is... Um... We wrote about the Wu Ling last week. In fact, it got a lot of interest on social media about the, the shopper car. I can't remember the exact... I mean, what we were saying is that the Chinese are streaking ahead in EV production. And this was a kind of like a runaround town model, which has proved to be very successful. So there's this little Wu Ling car, which is, I think, $12,000. There's a van version of it as well in China. And they, they sell it in a lot of the second-tier towns. People just use it to drive around town. It's got a much smaller range. It costs much less. And um, there was news this week that that's going to be exported in the van version with slightly beefed-up range um, all, out, all around the world. It's pl Places like China are the places that are experimenting with new types of vehicles. I think most Americans wouldn't want to be seen dead in a car that small without the power associated uh, with American cars. But uh, I think around Europe, around other places in the world, and I think that's 
that's going to start to take off. So you asked earlier, where, where are people losing the market share to? It is mostly the EV-only companies from America. So you have Lucid, you have Tesla, you have a few others, you have Rivian. And the exporters of EV-only cars like Neo from China and Europe. You know, Volkswagen has done a, a tremendous job. It whinged and whinged and didn't want to go EV, but it's got its supply chain act together more rapidly than um, most American companies. And they'll be pushing into into America cars that are already brand popular in America. So I, I see that's where they're going to lose their market share from the big three in, in, in the United States. They're going to have trouble recovering from it. And meanwhile, China is... Uh, exporting the Wuling and similar concepts. We can go on about that all day, um, but um, you did a piece, you, you mentioned, alluded to it earlier about Egypt and Azerbaijan. Do we really think that they can export um, a good solar irradiation situation and, and take their desert and turn it into electricity or better still hydrogen entries? You wrote a piece on that. Actually, the, I mean, I'm, I'm the solar writer, so I always have a slant towards solar when I'm writing about something. But I think the interesting thing about Azerbaijan is that this is the first offshore wind in the Caspian Sea. Um, okay. And, and it's going to have green hydrogen attached to it. So it's uh, interesting because of that, I suppose. Well, what are the conditions like in Azerbaijan in, uh, for renewables? Well, it's definitely windy, uh, and I think it's very sunny as well. So they're, they're good conditions. And I, I was saying in this piece... It's strange that Azerbaijan is adopting solar relatively early because I always have this idea in my mind that the countries which export gas therefore have cheap gas, therefore they have less of an incentive to switch away from gas, so they'll do it later. Uh, and especially Azerbaijan, I think, has pipelines into Russia, so it's got cheap gas. But uh, what I found is that actually it, it's not the biggest gas exporter, and increasingly, it's it, as its domestic consumption increases, it's using more of the gas, so it's making less money from exporting it. So building at least some renewables to, to you know, increase how much it can export is it makes a lot of sense in that in that way. So I, I remember Kazakhstan doing something similar. Uh, uh, is it last year? A uh, 50 gigawatt announcement? Yeah, uh, it was uh, Svevind, which I believe is Swedish, announcing a 45 gigawatts of renewables and 35, 30 gigawatts of electrolyzers for a green hydrogen complex. And it was just a memorandum of understanding sort of thing. And it seems to have shrunk since then to 20 gigawatts of electrolyzers, which is still uh, gigantic, of course. Uh, but yeah, that's a similar similar country. Has it shrunk? Has it shrunk, or is that just the first phase? Oh, that's a good question. I think it. I think it shrunk though, because okay. surely even a first stage wouldn't be twenty gigawatts. So you know, uh, they <laughs> haven't yet. <laughs> they haven't yet. Just, you know, they're, they're still a ways away from actually building something. And maybe the two gigawatts of electrolyzers in Azerbaijan is more interesting than the twenty in Kazakhstan because it's smaller and therefore it sounds more like something that's going to be built in the in the medium term. So who's helping Azerbaijan do this? Uh, in, in many of these cases, I mean, it was this, it was Favind in the case of Kazakhstan, but in many of the cases with uh, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, I think even Armenia um, and the rest of the Middle East, it's it's the UAE developer Mazda and the Saudi Arabia developer Aquapower, which is kind of ironic because they're not that they're kind of a bit they could, do, they could do it at home they could do it at home surely yeah and they have done i think they've done some solar at home but it's been dis pretty disappointing whatever it is 
<laughs> Meanwhile, you've got. If you these... go back two or three years, they were announcing big moves um, in in um, in Saudi Arabia, and then they didn't happen. So uh, you know that perhaps it's that they're, they're not the political um, uh, push there. A company like Svevin, if they if if they travel all the way to Kazakhstan to organise what was, what was in their mind a fifty gigawatt renewal capacity to to generate hydrogen. That's pretty far thinking, and there must be mo- lots of opportunities of that significance because the energy landscape is changing so fast. Hmm. And I, I, I still find it a little bit baffling that it was Kazakhstan, which is miles away from Europe or Japan, and it does have pipelines, I suppose, which they must be planning. I guess you can send it to China, but then you're sending it into rural China, which is not the wealthiest place ever. It was kind of it, it was quite. Interesting, you know, if it's there, if it's even being considered there. But maybe there was a lot of the reasons for why it's uh, a good place. I mean, it has obviously very good land availability. And I think that's the, I mean, Egypt announcing that it's leasing a whole load of desert to solar. It's kind of an obvious thing to do, but especially in a country that's a huge, a thin strip of populated river next to desert. It's kind of very straightforward to build sour solar. But if you look at this little map of the, sorry, I'm rambling a little bit. I kind of segued away from the hydrogen a bit too much. But actually, even when you're talking about the Egyptian solar and you look at the areas they've allocated, two of those areas are on the coastline of the Red Sea. So presumably, I mean, I know that there's uh, you know, there's some settlements there, so including wealthy tourist resorts. So there is power demand but maybe that's also about hydrogen since it's near the sea interestingly when you look at any any map of any country it starts with where the population centers are where the easy routes of travel are and and obviously you look at egypt and you and you basically see it uh, their telecommunications network and you go oh that's a picture of the nile and and if you look at their um, their waterways. Oh, that's a picture of, of the Nile. And if you look at everything else, it's a picture of the Nile. I mean, it, that's where you'll require the energy. If you make it at the end points rather than the centre um, in the desert, they, then you make it and then you flow it back. Um, all that stuff is um, the, the uh, electricity network will be the same shape as all the other networks. And I might not have written about Egypt and Azerbaijan, but it's it's part of a broader trend than just those countries. I mean, I was writing about Iran's four gigawatt solar tender, which I believe they're I still believe they're funding by themselves just off the 2022 oil prices. Uh, and there was Iraq announcing a whole load of gigawatts. Um, and these are countries uh, where it's not so much an energy transition; it's just building enough energy to power themselves fully for the first time, which is a bit more urgent than getting rid of a gas plant. Yeah, okay. So all we're seeing here is we're seeing a lot of um, people looking for big opportunities in countries which are mostly pre-industrial, bringing them up to the industrial age at the same time as leveraging the hydrogen opportunity. I mean, the more of that that actually comes to fruition, the more rapidly hydrogen accelerates as a global power. And it it ties into the news from China saying they're going to build potentially over 100 gigawatts this year of just the the solar market was what, 163 gigawatts last year. It can can double in a few years and then it can keep doubling because there's these countries that haven't even started yet. Yeah, uh, but it depends. There needs to be money to pay for it. And that means that the societies have to industrialize at the current rate of galloping inflation. It's hard to industrialize when you can't keep up with um, the rate at which the, the key elements of it are changing price. But um, you know, a price 
a period of price stability like we had with cheap gas for so long um, is usually a period of um, relatively low inflation when it's easier to industrialize but uh, um, we'll have to see going forward simon um let's come to you next what, what do you have for us this week well, there was an interesting thing in uh, worth noting at rethinkresearch.biz/energy in the uh, uh, world of renewables this week, and it was about uh, the concept of a CO2 battery um, as opposed to compressed air, and it's uh, uh, about a company called Energy Dome from Italy. Energy Dome, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, they've got new funding, I think, from the EU. And I'd never heard of a, a CO2 battery before. So well, what's that about? Okay. I mean, it, it's it's really about compressing it um, and using it, compression. Existing equipment that people use in compressed air, but using it to compress CO2 instead of air. It's their startup application. We, we wrote about it about six six or seven months ago when they got the EU funding. What they're saying now is that they've um, they've built it. It works. Um, it's proving their case. They're moving on to the industrial phase now where they're going to roll it out and they have some projects already. So um, it's uh, it's an Italian company. It's, it's based in Sardinia, uh, which if you've never been to it, is uh, a beautiful island. And um, the most impressive thing about it is the um, levelized cost of storage, which they claim they can get it down to $50. Now, when we were following um, the falling price of lithium iron, we were looking at $240, dropping to in about 18 months to about 137 and it was dropping, dropping. But the trouble with now, as, as the car industry has suddenly embraced electric vehicles, um, the supply lines are getting clogged and um, people are looking for new sources of lithium. People are looking at mostly new sources of r- rare earth elements for the uh, cathodes. And more to the point, they're looking for um, replacements for those that are equally efficient. You've got this kind of land grab going on and the price of, well, I don't believe the price of lithium ion batteries have fallen in the last 12 months. and I think they will go up in the next 24 months. So I don't think we've got the supply lines right for that. And, and it, it won't fall to this type of price, 50 to $60, um, for five, six, seven years. This company's got an opportunity um, to build these projects for the next five, six, seven years and build a reputation for itself and lower that price even further. It, it, yeah. Is the CO2 I, I, part I, interesting or would it be equally interesting if it was compressed air? Is it just compressed air with less of a fire risk because it doesn't have oxygen? It's not about fire risk. It's it's really about how much compression it will take and how much energy you can get out of it and how you can do it in a smaller foot space, you know, uh, footprint. Um, so CO two has only been chosen for its compression characteristics, not not because it's um, not a fire risk or anything like that. That's, compressed air is not a fire risk. The beauty of doing all this is you can take off the shelf equipment that's already being made and not being widely used. Um, therefore it's cheap and say right I'm going to use this compressor that's been around for 30 years uh, I, I'm, I'm obviously going to power it with um, something that's not uh, that's not um, uh, CO2 producing I'm going to use um, solar panels to power it and I'm going to drive this energy into uh, um, a compressed gas 
and store the compressed gas over here. Then I'm going to release it to turn turbines to get the electricity back. If you can get a good round trip efficiency in that, then you um, then then you're going to do as well as as any other form of energy. Um, if you if, if if this stuff costs nothing to make, then you can have a low uh, LCOS. Go on. No, would would this technology pass the rethink litmus test? Of is it can it be uh, put into a gigafactory or is it just a project? No, I, I believe it, it won't pass that litmus test. I believe it absolutely. Um, it's it's you're not really making anything. You're taking off the shelf equipment that's already being made, and from established supply chains, and you're putting it together as a project. Yeah, definitely, that's what you're doing. Um, can you have 20 or 30 successful projects? Yes. Can you make money from them? Yes. Will it change the dial on the uh, energy transition? No. Because you can't scale it fast enough. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that out there, I, there aren't some people listening to this podcast saying, it's exactly what I need. I, I need this dome full of CO2 that I can then compress and then release again. It's got a small footprint and I can stick it next to my town and I can store... Um, 200 megawatt hours of energy um, to use it um, uh, in a 24-hour cycle or a three or four-day cycle. So it's it's a long-duration energy storage um, solution looking for a problem. I mean, I, I think that's true of CAES, which is which is they, they've kind of borrowed from compressed air. And I think it's true of people like Highview who do the. Um, do the frozen air and i think it's true of people at hydrostore who do compressed air under in underground caverns which you, they dig themselves all of those shoot for lcos is in the 120 dollars and below um all of them will be wiped out if lithium ion goes below that level and lithium ion was poised to go that level this year and next year except it, it's changed direction it's the same as solar. Solar's changed direction in price because it's it's not currently going down in price because we've got problems with it. Is it possible that you'll have an entire menagerie of different battery technologies on the grid, metal, different metals? Uh, different chemistries in the batteries, you mean? Yeah, I've heard of so many. Yeah. Lead, carbon. Okay. Let, 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 let's, let's say it right here and now. We believe there will be two or three non-lithium-ion batteries which dominate something close to um, 40 or 50 percent of all projects um, which are not lithium ion in the next three to four years on the grid and we think there's room there for an industry to form uh, below the uh, lithium ion um, falling price because um, at, while the supply lines build up to support the car industry um, after that you're going to have to be cheaper than lithium ion and fight your own battles um, so you've got three to four years to get, build your factory, build another factory, double the output, build the supply lines, get people used to installing you. And I do believe that the, the grid will, it will go as low as 50%. I mean, we, we say 95% of all installations for energy storage are lithium ion right now. I think that could go below 50% two to three years from now. It'll come back up when we solve all the technical problems around lithium ion, thermal runaway, you know, dendrite formation cost but that, that's going to take quite a while and it, it means a massive shift to lfp batteries and um 
and perhaps even solid state. And that those things are not going to happen overnight. And, and there is a, a break, a pause where we can make money out of this. But you're absolutely right, Simon. If it's just a project, you will make some money, but it's like building another dam. You know, all dams are different. They, they sit in the, uh, in the geology that you're stuck with. And these project-based technologies can make people rich. Can they solve the puzzle? No. So the hunt continues for technologies for gigafactories. Yeah, and I think I think um, when we finished um, the forecast, uh, which I'm doing right now on battery storage, we're going to have a little look at um, 20 or 30 different battery storage options and see which ones we believe will make it. Put that in a research paper. Okay. All right. So there's all this and more in every issue of Rethink Energy. You should go and read it. Go sign up for it. It doesn't cost anything. What costs something is the um, are the forecasts, which uh, we point out all the time on our website. And you can buy into the service for $4,600 a year. And the forecasts are under the forecast and data banner on the website. Um, that's me, Peter White, signing off. And uh, we'll see you again next week.